Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. The balls were deflated. Well, probably. We'll talk a little bit about that, whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode nine of The Bridge. Well, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. This being Sunday, May 10th, 2015, a beautiful, sunny, warm Mother's Day. A happy Mother's Day to my mother, Joanne, my godmother, Aunt Seal, and of course, my grandmother, Three of the best mothers that anyone could ask for. And with this newfangled technology that I have going now here on the bridge with a mixer and the ability to have people live on the show through some phone interviews, maybe I should have had my mother on to talk a little bit about sports. Unfortunately, she probably would have no idea what I'm about to talk about for this week's podcast and would probably be asking personal questions about how work is doing and if I ate yet. So I'll save you guys from that and just get into what I thought was most prevalent to talk about in Episode 9 here of The Bridge, and I thought we should start with the NBA playoffs. Now, I don't know what the reason for this is, but it's been hard for me to get really involved with the NBA playoffs this season as a whole. There have been a couple of interesting series and some really great basketball games, but as a whole, it's kind of gone according to plan, if you will, and if it hasn't, you're in a way waiting for it to go to plan. In the second round here, we only really have two series that are worth mentioning that have been exciting, one of them, of course, being the Chicago Bulls-Cleveland Cavaliers series, which actually just had its game for today, and the Cleveland Cavaliers won that game on a buzzer beater shot by LeBron James in the corner to send the series back to Cleveland and give the Cavaliers that life that they needed and really disappoint the chance for the Bulls to go up 3-1, to one, heading into a Game 5 in Cleveland where if you lose, it's not a huge deal because you're coming back home from Game 6 and you could end the series that way. And this was really a game that the Bulls should have won. They had a lot of opportunities and did have several leads. I believe they were leading by seven with around 40 seconds to go in the third quarter, but they come out in the fourth and couldn't throw the ball into the ocean for points. They were struggling for points. The Cavs had several big runs this game to bring them back to within striking distance. And then as the game was wearing down, it was the LeBron James show where he would take the ball at the top of the key, run down the shot clock, and then drive to the basket, hoping to get fouled or hoping to make a layup. The Bulls went down by five. Jimmy Butler ends up hitting a step-back three-point shot to get them within two. And then the wheels kind of came off the cart in the game. LeBron ends up getting the ball with around 15 seconds to go, up two, and you expect that Chicago is going to follow him 
Instead, they put a double team on him with Mike Dunleavy and Derrick Rose, and LeBron has his elbows out to create space and then tries to create too much space and barrels into Mike Dunleavy, who goes with it and ends up taking the offensive foul, something that he learned how to do perfectly while playing college basketball at Duke. So LeBron, of course, is not pleased. And the Bulls end up getting the ball back. Derrick Rose hits a layup to tie things up with around eight seconds left. LeBron takes it the length of the floor, works his way down low for a layup or some contact for a foul. And he does get that contact from Joe Kim Noah. But the refs swallow their whistles. The ball goes out of bounds with about 0.8 seconds on the clock at that time. And LeBron is furious that he did not get a foul call there. He should have. I don't know why he wasn't getting many calls down the stretch. You would think since he's one of the best players in the NBA, he would have worked up to that, but he did not get the call there. But the fortunate thing for Cleveland is that the referees ended up going to the instant replay to see how much time should be left on the clock. The Cavs had already used the rest of their timeouts. They had three timeouts down the stretch, end up calling two in consecutive plays when they're trying to inbound the basketball with 15 seconds to go so they don't have any timeouts left there was a point after the basket by Derrick Rose when David Blatt decided he was going to try and call timeout even though he had none left and that would have been a technical but he was saved by none other than Tyron Lue former Los Angeles Lakers stud who you may remember from getting stepped over by Allen Iverson in the NBA Finals That was basically his only one shining moment as a player, but he's managed to become a decent assistant coach, I would say. I don't really know much about what he does, but he's still he's still in the league. We'll put it that way. So in going to the instant replay, both teams end up basically getting another timeout and the Cavs are able to draw up a play. Unfortunately, we're never going to find out what that play was because all LeBron did was create a little space, run to the corner and get the pass and drain the three point shot to lead Cleveland to the victory. And he said at the press conference after the game that he just basically ignored whatever play that David Blatt had drawn up and just went on his own. So the David Blatt in Cleveland narrative continues. It hasn't really been bad blood between him and LeBron, but there's been a ton of times where he's just done his own thing. And I'll tell you what, if they end up losing in this round, David Blatt will not be back in Cleveland next year. There's no way that LeBron is going to have that happen. He'll run him out of town before you'll know what even happen so fortunately they do get the win LeBron shot 10 of 30 on the night Kyrie Irving had an awful shooting game as well down the stretch it was basically LeBron holding on to the ball because who was he going to pass it to he doesn't have his security blanket of Ray Allen or Dwayne Wade or Chris Bosh to give the ball to and place the blame on should they miss a last second shot like he did when he was with the Miami Heat It was all on his shoulders, and it was very disappointing up until that three-point shot where he was having a horrific game, and if Cleveland ended up losing, it would not have been good for the LeBron James narrative. And as I said, this was a game that Chicago needed to win. They made some big shots down the stretch, but they just didn't show up in the fourth quarter up until those final couple of minutes and never were really able to put their foot on the throat of Cleveland. And Cleveland was able to take control of the game at certain times. You had J.R. Smith hitting a couple of big threes down the stretch. Joachim Noah on Chicago has forgotten how to make a layup, which has definitely been interesting to watch. This was Chicago's game, 
and it would have been great for them to go up 3-1. It would have put all the pressure on the Cavaliers going back home, and it would have been interesting to see what LeBron was going to do in Game 5. Now, it probably would have been a game where they come out and win by 30, which is typical of the NBA and typical of LeBron teams, but that Game 6 would have had a lot more pepper to it if they were coming back with the possibility of Chicago taking the series at home. Now, they do still have the opportunity to do that, obviously, but I don't see them going into Cleveland and winning Game 5. I think they could win that Game 6, but then it's going to be another Game 7 in Cleveland, and we'll see what they'll be able to do there. It's been a great series. On Friday night, it was Derrick Rose with the buzzer beater shot banking in a wing three to give Chicago the win there and send the fans into a frenzy and put the haters to rest at least for one game that Derrick Rose doesn't have anything left and he can't play if he doesn't get rest. He's really not that great of a three-point shooter, but when the lights were on him, he did not disappoint and it was a great win for Chicago to take that first game at home. One of the other good series that is currently underway and will be playing later tonight is the Clippers and the Houston Rockets series. The Clippers have a 2-1 lead there and have another game at home tonight where a win would basically almost give them a trip to the next round, being up 3-1 against Houston. I think they have the opportunity to win this game. As I mentioned in previous shows, Houston just seems to find a way to disappoint They do have some great players in James Harden. Dwight Howard has been coming along. But the team as a whole, I don't think has enough pieces for them to be able to get over that hump and really make a good run in the playoffs. The Clippers, on the other hand, have a pretty stacked lineup throughout their starters and reserves. They just have a lot of depth that I think will help them. The only thing that they have to watch out for is if Chris Paul can stay healthy throughout their playoff run. He did miss game one with a hamstring injury. If that ends up getting tweaked either this game or maybe the next That could be a problem for L.A., maybe not in this series, but the next. But if they can find a way to get healthy, they're going to be a tough team to beat in that next round to see who's going to represent the West in the NBA Finals. They'll either be playing the Golden State Warriors or the Memphis Grizzlies. The Grizzlies have been a surprise. They lead this series 2-1 to and have another home game coming up Monday night for them to really take control of this series and go up 3-1 if they could win that. Their defense has been great against guys like Steph Curry and Klay Thompson. They have the NBA All-Defensive player in Tony Allen really putting a foot down on the defensive end against some of Golden State's better shooters. Marcus Gasol has done his thing, and Zach Randolph has really showed a lot of poise early in the playoffs and has come up with some big shots as well. Memphis has always been a team that you don't really remember when you're thinking about teams in the NBA or who's going to do well into the playoffs. They're always there, but you never really give them the benefit of the doubt. They've just never had that player that can put them over the edge. With Mike Conley coming back and playing in this series, even though he basically had a broken face, he's been a game changer for them, and they have yet to lose a game with him in the lineup in the playoffs I believe they're five and oh and without him they're two and three so it just goes to show you what an important player he is for that team and if he can stay on the floor it at least gives Memphis a much better chance of moving on and beating this Golden State Warriors team now granted in game three I'll use the similar phrase again they could not throw the ball into the ocean they shot awful especially from the three-point line they could not make a three-point shot to save their life you would think that they wouldn't have such a bad shooting night again in game four 
But it will be interesting to see what Steve Kerr has up his sleeve as far as what he wants to do on the offensive end to match up with these great defenders that Memphis has and then what he's going to do on the defensive end to keep them in check. It's going to be quite a test for the first-year head coach. Now back over to the East real quick. The other series going on, we have the Atlanta Hawks and the Washington Wizards. The Wizards lead this series 2-1, to one, and their last win came on Saturday night courtesy of Paul Pierce who had one of the best quotes I've heard in a very long time when it comes to a game-winning shot. We remember that Paul Pierce basically was signed by this team to be that veteran guy that they did not have to play alongside John Wall, who may not be able to play at all in this series. He has five different fractures in his left hand and wrist, and he hasn't been able to do anything, even as little as dribble the basketball, because of those injuries. So if he's not in the lineup, that's going to really hurt Washington. They might be able to squeak by the Hawks and get to that next round, but I don't see them beating the Bulls or Cleveland. That series has basically turned into whoever wins it is going on to the finals. But back to Paul Pierce. He gets the ball at the end of Game 3, shoots a fadeaway shot, and banks it in to give the Wizards the Game 3 win. And after the game, immediately after the game, actually, Chris Broussard interviews him about the shot. And his third question was, did you call bank? And Paul Pierce just stares at him and then says, I called game. And Mean mugs the camera. Chris Broussard tries to get another question in and he just walks away into the arms of his teammates. What a taunt that was. I called game. That's one of the best taunts I think we've ever heard as far as post-game on-field or on-court interviews is concerned. I think I would still have to give it to Bart Scott in that instance, though, but that's besides the point. It was a great thing to say, and it's definitely going to have the Wizards amped up when they play Game 4 at home. So really, their biggest problem is going to be without John Wall. If he can't come back this series, you can't count out the Hawks to make a comeback here and get themselves back into the series with a win in Game Game four. If John Wall can somehow come back, especially if the Wizards win game four, I think they're going to move on to play either Cleveland or Chicago. All right, so now that we've got that out of our system, the biggest thing that has come up in sports this week has been the resurgence of Deflategate as to whether or not Tom Brady knew that the footballs were deflated in the AFC Championship game against the Indianapolis Colts. And after five months, and a 243-page report that was released on Wednesday, we finally get the answer that Tom Brady was at least generally aware that two Patriots employees probably tampered with the balls. Oh, well, that's, that's it? An independent investigation that was commissioned by the NFL just gives the results that it was more probable than not that uh, Tom Brady probably knew. New England personnel probably altered the footballs in a deliberate effort to circumvent the rules. All right. So this is basically like when you have two children and one of them says the other stole their ice cream cone. Billy, did you steal Sally's ice cream cone? I think it was more than probable that you did. I think you're at least generally aware that you stole that damn ice cream cone. Don't you look at me that way. You had to probably maybe know that you stole that ice cream cone. That's almost what we got from this report. But there's a lot that went into it, and I want to take some time to go over the specifics with you about it, because 243 pages, that's a lot of information to go through. So I'm just going to give a decent enough summary where you can wrap your head around what the hell's happened in the past five months. 
if we go back to the Patriots in the regular season, December 14th, the 15th game that they played that year, they beat the Dolphins 41-13 at home. That next week, they play the Jets at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey. They win 17-16, just squeaking out the victory against the Jets, who always seem to give them problems. Last game of the season, they host the Bills, and they lose 17-9 and drop to 12-4. and But they get a first round bye in the wild card. Then January 10th, the divisional game against the Baltimore Ravens, which of course they host. They edge them 35-31. They move on to the AFC Championship game when all of this went down. January 18, 2015, they beat the Colts 45-7. The game was never close after maybe halfway through the second quarter. They go to the Super Bowl February 1st. They play the Seahawks. They end up winning 28-24 when Seattle Seahawks head coach Pete Carroll decides that he's not going to give the ball to the best running back in the National Football League at the one-yard line and instead will throw the ball to somebody else, and it was intercepted, and they ended up losing at the end of the game. Still not over that, by the way, but we're not going to get into that, at least not this show. But after the Colts game, it comes out that the Patriots probably tampered with the footballs and deflated them, which as a fan, you're thinking, really? How is that even possible? How did nobody catch this? So, of course, Tom Brady is asked about it, and he denies any knowing of any wrongdoings. Robert Kraft, the Patriots owner, is asked about it. He doesn't know anything. Bill Belichick, the Patriots head coach, is asked about it. He doesn't know anything. Nobody seems to know what's going on. They're just getting ready for the Super Bowl. So in typical NFL fashion, this doesn't get rectified before the Super Bowl is played, which you could expect. You had fans calling in the sports talk radio shows saying that the Patriots shouldn't even be able to play in the Super Bowl because they were cheaters and this or that. But the Super Bowl went on as planned. And then you expected maybe the week after you'd finally get an answer to what went down in this whole deflate gate scandal. Just another black mark on the New England Patriots franchise, especially when they win Super Bowls. Spygate, Deflategate, Drew Bledsoe Gate. Well, maybe not that. At least not yet. Who knows? So I'm going to use some information that was published with SB Nation just because I didn't feel like typing up a narrative of 243 pages worth of Deflategate information and thought they might be able to do it for me, which they did. The report included scientific analysis, stating that it would be essentially impossible for the balls to deflate as much as they did because of the temperature, especially considering that the footballs the Colts used did not have a similar deflation. So one of the guys in question, John Jastrzemski, who the report describes as the Patriots, quote, principal game ball maker, has made these specific game balls look okay for the refs. He spends all week preparing them to Brady's liking. He spends about an hour breaking them in and breaks into 20 to 35 per week. That's his job. Riveting stuff. So Sunday of that AFC championship game, he spent time rubbing the balls down with leather gloves to match the tack of receivers gloves, a request that Brady made because of the bad weather. So Jastrzemski says he used to set balls between 12.75 and 12.85 PSI, but after an October game against those Jets that they just barely won, Brady complained about the ball's overinflation, and he said he wanted that around 12.6, which is just a tad above the NFL's lowest legal limit of 12.5 PSI. 
So at the start, everything's normal. The balls are delivered to NFL ref Walt Anderson, who the report states is one of the few head refs who actually tests the pressure of the game balls instead of handing that duty off to another crew member. Anderson finds most of the balls are 12.5 PSI, one or two are at 12.6, and there's two that don't comply. An assistant, Greg Yett, inflates the balls to within the legal limit. But at some point, Jim McNally, who is a Patriots employee, reminds Anderson that Tom likes them at 12 and a half. This isn't out of the ordinary. Anderson recalls that McNally has made this same request in the past. The ref knows McNally well. He's worked as a seasonal or part-time employee for the Patriots for 32 years since he was 16. His official title is Officials Locker Room Attendant. And his job is getting the refs toiletries, programs, whatever else they need before the games. The refs describe him as professional, attentive, and cordial, according to the report. What the refs don't know is that McNally has another unofficial role. Text messages between McNally and Jastrzemski reveal that he calls himself the deflator. And that he often references a specific role in maintaining the inflation level of football's not part of his duties in the official's locker room. He also often jokes with Jastrzemski about Brady threatening to overinflate the balls if he doesn't receive cash, sneakers, or autographs. So he's not just doing this out of the goodness of his heart. At some point, McNally asks for permission to move the balls closer to the door of the locker room to make it easier to move to the field, and he's able to do so. So video footage shows that at 6.30, 20 minutes before kickoff, McNally leaves the locker room with the balls, walks toward the field, goes in the bathroom, locks the door, and stays there for a minute and 40 seconds where he presumably took the air out of the footballs. McNally can't quite remember the details surrounding his trip to the bathroom. Shocking, I know. In his initial interview with the NFL security staff, he says he walked straight to the field and didn't go to the bathroom. Later, he tells investigators that he dropped the bag and used the urinal in the bathroom, which does not have a urinal. When you gotta go, you gotta go. Maybe he thought the sink was a urinal. He says he didn't use the bathroom in the officials' locker room because refs like space before they take the field, but officials agree it would have been normal for him to use the bathroom there. So McNally says it was totally normal for him as well to leave the refs' locker room with the footballs without their consent. He says he only walks with officials about half the time and that he brings the game balls to the field when he sees fit. Patriot security staff said that's what McNally normally did. Referees vehemently disagree with this. Anderson asserts that people beside the refs are not supposed to leave the locker room with the game balls, that he has denied requests from ball boys and locker room attendants to do so, and that he would have denied a request from McNally to do so as well. Other referees also agreed with this account. The refs don't notice that McNally has left. When they get set to take the field, they realize the balls are missing and panic. Anderson says this is the first time in his 19 years that he's been unable to locate the balls before the game. He's flustered. The normally calm ref is, quote, visibly concerned and uncharacteristically used an expletive. Probably, oh Christ, as they attempt to track down these footballs. The refs take the field without them. They ask somebody else to go get the backup balls, but right after they do, they find McNally and there's the balls. Hooray! So when the refs inspect the balls at halftime after the complaints of the Colts, who were supposedly warned of this deflation by the Ravens, who I mentioned earlier, they are woefully underinflated. Woefully is the word SB Nation uses there. Very nice. While all the Colts balls measure at least 12.5 PSI on one of the referee's gauges, only one of the Pats' 11 balls even measured 12 PSI, with most falling between 10 or 11 PSI. 
but the report doesn't necessarily condemn the Patriots because there's no visual evidence of McNally doing this. There's no text messages confirming that he did this. But McNally definitely had the footballs, and the referees did not agree to that. He also went to a place where he couldn't be visibly seen with the footballs. And then at halftime, the balls were more deflated than they were before the start of the game. So there's no smoking gun per se, but you could pretty much see where this ended up going. Now, McNally and Yastrzemski had interesting text message conversations among each other, referencing Brady and his dissatisfaction with the inflation of the footballs, joking about making watermelons with the balls for a later game. Those texts also discussed a payout for their services, which I said included cash, sneakers, and clothing, which McNally would receive for deflating the footballs. So Tom Brady did say to investigators that he was not aware of who McNally was or what his role was with the organization, even though he's been giving him shoes or autographs or cash. Interesting. Now, another interesting thing about this is Brady and Jastrzemski hadn't talked on the phone for six months prior to January 19th, when the news of the deflated balls and the looming investigation broke, according to phone records, turned over with the Wells report. That day, the two of them exchanged a series of phone calls and text messages directly referencing the investigation into the deflated game balls in the AFC Championship. At 9.51 at night, Brady texts, You good, Johnny boy? He responds, Still nervous. So far, so good, though. I'll be all right. Brady texts back, You didn't do anything wrong, bud. To which Jastrzemski replies, I know, semicolon, I'll be all good. So when these conversations were recounted to investigators, the recollections of the conversations on the phone, of course, are very foggy. Brady acknowledges talking about preparing the balls for the Super Bowl in a similar way and how the balls for the AFC Championship game were prepped, but neither one revealed anything incriminating to investigators when recounting the conversations. So there's your more probable than not conclusion that Yastrzemski and McNally had intentionally deflated the game balls as the Wells report points to in the frequency of the calls and the text message between Brady and Yastrzemski, as well as between the two of them after the news of the deflated footballs first going public. Yastrzemski and Brady ended up speaking on the phone six times that week for a total of more than 55 minutes. Now, if you're wondering why we don't have Tom Brady's phone, he declined handing it over to the investigators and refused to cooperate with what they were doing. So there was no cell phone records, no text messages. He just basically said, nah, I'm good. Which with the CBA and the NFL, you don't have to do that sort of thing. And I can't really blame him for him choosing to not give up his cell phone. I mean, could you imagine as well the other text messages that might be going around in Tom Brady's cell phone, whether it be between like him and Gronk or him and whatever side piece he might be seeing at the time? Dear Lord, not saying that any of those things exist, but they would be there if they did. And that's probably not the best when you're a guy like Tom Brady. So after this report comes out on Wednesday, this is when things started getting really fun. Tom Brady Sr., for whatever reason, rose from the cracks and went to USA Today on Wednesday to speak in favor of his son, Tom Brady. I don't really know what age the cutoff is when you shouldn't need your father to speak on your behalf anymore, but I think Tom Brady, after winning four Super Bowls and a couple MVPs, is probably past that point where he doesn't need his father to speak on his behalf. But anyway, the first Brady we hear from about this is Tom Brady Sr., 
He says, I don't have any doubt with my son's integrity, not one bit. In this country, you're innocent until proven guilty. It just seems Tommy is now guilty until proven innocent. So after that, everyone was waiting to see when Tom Brady was going to speak on this. And he had a lot of jokes when he was finally interviewed by sportscaster Jim Gray during a previously scheduled event at Salem State University in Massachusetts on Thursday night. Now, you may remember Jim Gray for publicly ripping Pete Rose on national television a couple years back, but he seems to still be the face when there's an important interview to be had. I don't know where he goes before or after these happen, but here he was back. Jim Gray is the man asking him these questions. So the first thing that Tom Brady says at this presser is, I don't really have any reaction. Our owner commented on it yesterday. It's only been 30 hours. I haven't had much time to digest it fully, but when I do, I'll be sure to let you know how I feel about it. So when Jim Gray presses him for more, he still remains coy. Hopefully soon, there's still a process that's going forth right now, he added. Whenever it happens, it happens. So then Gray asks if he felt that the Super Bowl was tainted because of the report findings. To which the crowd starts booing and jeering in the background, and he laughs and says, Oh, let's ask them what they think. Boo! <laughs> oh, Tom. Then he says, Nah, I don't think so. I'm going with what they said. And Jim Gray says, I didn't ask for what they said. I want to know what you say. And he says, Absolutely not. Because we earned and achieved everything that we got this year as a team. I'm very proud of that, and our fans should be too. Brady goes on to say, I've dealt with a lot of things in the past. I dealt with this three months ago before the Super Bowl. I've dealt with a lot of adversity over the course of my career, my life. I'm very fortunate. I have so many people who love me and support me. In life, so much is about ups and downs, and certainly I accept my role and responsibility as a public figure. And I think a lot of it, you take the good with the bad, and dealing with different adversities in life, you just try to do the best that you can. Jesus, that's like a poster that you see on a fourth grade classroom. Just take the good with the bad and deal with adversity the best you can. Shouldn't you be taking the bad with the good? Maybe I have that switch, but I think now you're having to take a bad thing with the good things that you have, like the Super Bowl. He also went on to say, as a human, you care what people think. I also think as a public figure, you learn not everyone is going to like you. Good, bad, or indifferent, there are a lot of people who don't like Tom Brady, and I'm okay with that. You smug son of a bitch, Tom Brady. Sitting up there with that big smile on your face, acting like Jim Gray is some peasant coming to the king for a brief request for some more food. Like the scene in Oliver Twist where that fat warden just basically tells him that he's a fool for asking for more. Now, I don't think that deflating footballs is that big of a deal. Even if this had happened and Tom Brady wasn't aware that they were going to deflate them to the extent that they did, and he came out and said, I like the footballs a certain way, I like them a little bit more deflated, I had no idea that it was going to be to this extent for this particular game, it will never happen again, I'm sorry. But for him to stand up on the podium and just deny, deny, deny and say that he had no knowledge of any of this going on and never would do something like this and couldn't imagine them coming down on him for this. 
What gets me is the defiance that he's had over this whole situation. The lie has been bigger than the crime. Isn't that some Watergate quote? That's what gets me is that he's denied this the whole way. And he could have put water on the fire if he just said after the initial allegations happened that he does like his balls with a little less air in them, but he didn't know and blah, blah, blah. It'll never happen again. All he needed to do was kind of apologize, not even give a full apology, but just show some remorse for whatever has happened and just apologize to the league, to the fans, to the Colts, and people would have been okay with that. People love apologies. People love being able to forgive. But for him to just be so smug about it and look people dead in the eye and basically tell them, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, is ridiculous. Because what he's done in the past several months is not what a role model does. It's not what a hero does. It's not someone that you should look up to does. Now, there are a lot of great role models in sports, don't get me wrong. But I think the culture of the NFL and the culture of the media puts these athletes on such a high pedestal that when something like this happens, people just think, not Tom, couldn't be Tom. He's basically acting like he accidentally backed into someone's car while trying to parallel park and there's a little dent and you know what? We'll just deal with it in time. No big deal. For him to have text message conversations and repeated phone conversations with these people that he doesn't really deal with unless it's signing a check or making sure that some new shoes get delivered to wherever their office may be. Talking to these people on the phone, sending text messages in the morning, yo, call me, talking to them for 13 minutes. After dinner, another text. I need to talk to you. Talking for another 20. What the hell are you talking about? I'm sure Tom Brady gives a shit about this guy's wedding. What are you doing? Oh, I'm in a bath with some candles. How are you, Tom? Oh, you know, just watching the kids running around. What are you wearing, Johnny boy? Tom Brady has enough time to be on the phone for 20, 25 minutes with these people, but he doesn't have 20 or 25 minutes to go over the Wells report and see what's been brought against him in this Deflategate scandal. These 243 pages, he's got things. He's got phone calls to make. They run 20 to 25 minutes apiece. He's got, you know, 10 or 15. He's a busy man. He can't be looking at these reports. And now we're going to see what Roger Goodell comes up with as far as a suspension is concerned, because this isn't something that's in the rule book. Some people have argued fines. Some people have argued suspensions, which range from two to four to six to the whole season. I don't think a fine will do any justice at all for this. The man's got so much money, his wife has even more money, that any amount of fine that they could give him isn't going to matter. I think they have to take away what Tom Brady loves to do, and that's play football. Even though it wouldn't be great to watch Jimmy Garoppolo start the game for the Patriots when they play the Steelers on opening night to start this year off on Thursday, I think Roger Goodell has to suspend Tom Brady for at least two games. And I wouldn't be surprised or disappointed if it was four games to at least put the Patriots at some sort of disadvantage. What's been interesting about decisions that he's made, though, is that he'll release that someone did something and that a decision will be made. And then it seems like the NFL and Roger Goodell just kind of wait and see what the public perception of it is. Like, oh, I wonder how mad they're going to be at this. Then I'll decide how many games this will be. This is the same sort of thing where they release the report. There's no punishment handed down. A couple days ago, they said there will be punishment. And now we're still waiting for that punishment to be given. So it looks like not only does Tom Brady need 30 hours to make decisions, so does Roger Goodell. 
So that's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this and previous podcasts on my website, www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter at that same handle, at London Bridge. You could subscribe to The Bridge on iTunes through my website, so you can listen to this podcast on your long train rides to and from work. Next week, we might bring a guest back. We'll be talking a little bit more about where we stand on the NBA playoffs. We'll hit on some baseball and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. <laughs>